CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You can actually beam the data to the miner and back from the miner and burn the electricity locally in order to produce Bitcoin. So that solves the problem because of the differences between distribution of data and distribution of power. Hello and welcome. This is episode 435 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, we'll discuss what looks like a new and growing trend of Bitcoin mining coming back to the U.S., but in a new form as large companies look to Bitcoin mining as a way to potentially go green. It's a narrative reversal if ever I've seen one, and we'll get into that first. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro.com. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and is editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to this episode 435 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine, and joining our discussion today are the other hosts of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Greetings, dear listeners. On behalf of the host, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So mining, it's arguably the critical activity in the world of Bitcoin, processing transactions, ensuring the rules of the protocol are enforced, and keeping the network geographically distributed, which makes it frankly a lot safer and more resilient against any sort of shock that may emerge in this changing, crazy world. Something between 60 and 70% of mining activity that happens in the Bitcoin network happens within China. And there's a bunch of reasons why that's true. And it's always kind of been this problematic thing. There's definitely a lot of geographic diversity within China, certainly, and within the different operations that are in there. So you can't really say, oh, well, China has, you know, some sort of centralization of mining. But the reality is, is that they provide a huge proportion of that power. And China is an authoritarian state. And so there are some implications that kind of go along with that, which have never really been great, but they've always kind of been the reality, at least for the last number of years. In the U.S., because electricity is so expensive in the vast majority of places, mining has been almost a hobbyist activity. There have been some incidental sort of operations and even some larger operations that take advantage of excesses of electricity, but they're always doing it effectively as a third party, effectively coming in and then working with a hydroelectric plant in order to take their excess energy or something like that. What we're starting to see and what these two stories are about today is a move where instead of using third-party companies that are mining companies specifically, instead energy companies are starting to view mining as a way to either make more money or to effectively lower their regulatory burden in some circumstances. The first example of this comes to us from New York. This was an article out of Coindesk, I think a month or two ago at this point. We were planning on talking about it, but it's gotten pushed a few times. 
It's this company called Greenwich Generation. It's a natural gas power plant located near the town of Dresden in the Finger Lakes region. And basically, they announced a couple of months ago that they had installed a fairly large mining farm within their facility as part of a effectively remodel and sort of rebuild out of the facility. So this is a natural gas plant where they harvest natural gas and then they burn natural gas to generate electricity and then they sell that electricity into the grid. And so what had been happening is they had been only actually generating electricity during peak hours because it was inefficient to do it at other hours, but it was inefficient to do it during kind of off-peak times. Because they couldn't sell it for a price that would make it make sense? Right, exactly, because they were feeding electricity into the system. But when you look at systems, stepping back from this particular example, balancing the amount of power in the electrical grid is actually really challenging because when you generate electricity, it's not like you can just kind of keep it hanging around, right? There are batteries and there are ways that you can store that electricity, but they're pretty darn inefficient and they lose charge pretty quick. And so what happens a lot of times is you have these plants just shut down and there's a cost to starting up the plant and shutting down the plant and kind of all the changes that come along with that. It's called load balancing, and typically what they'll do is they'll run the hydroelectric generation overnight, but instead of sending that electricity out to the grid, where it frankly isn't really needed at that time, they'll use the power to pump water up into high storage ponds. Effectively, it's a way of storing energy, right? They're using energy that they're generating anyways, because these things generate power by water running downhill through the turbines. They're able to use that electricity that isn't particularly valuable to the system as a way to store energy for the future. So in the case of something like a natural gas plant, it doesn't really work that way. You can't, you know, pump the natural gas up to a high thing because what you're doing is you're burning it. So effectively, what they did here is they said, all right, we're going to take the electricity. We're not going to shut down the plant anymore. It's going to run 24 hours a day. And instead of having that start and stop cost, we're going to run a farm of effectively 7,000 mining rigs, which at the time, a couple of months ago, was generating 5.5 bitcoins per day. So it's not a small amount of money. Do you know why they can't store the natural gas itself overnight? Too expensive. In order to store natural gas, you need to compress it. And compressing it requires both storage facilities with thick walls or giant, giant tanks. You've probably seen these tanks in the wild. They look like giant cylinders, and they're usually surrounded by empty space, but these tanks have to be fairly thick-walled, from what I understand, in order to store natural gas, because you compress it and turn it into a liquid, right? And compressing it takes energy, and storing it and the precautions you need to take was highly explosive, obviously. So it's much more complicated than, for example, pumping water uphill or storing it in another form. And of course, Bitcoin is a way of storing fungible energy in an indirect way. That makes sense. But the other thing I was thinking about is, didn't New York ban Bitcoin mining by electric companies a few years ago? I feel like I heard something about that. The city of Plattsburgh in northern New York banned or passed an ordinance, I think, against the local energy company doing that because I think the demand from the local mining company was driving up prices or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. Right. Miners, when they do these things, they look for places that have sort of imbalances, right? They look for places where electricity is too cheap, but too cheap is a relative term, right? When you're talking as a miner, you're thinking about what is cheap relative to the rest of the country or what is cheap relative to the rest of the world. But for the local market, that price that was perceived as low by everybody else might have been a really desirable thing. So you can see how there could be some tension between sort of a local population and miners who come in to take advantage of those low energy prices just by necessarily pushing them up to market level. 
Yeah, and one of the things that this conversation needs is a context. I did a segment recently on this, which is the fact that the current price of oil changes everything in terms of Bitcoin mining, as well as in terms of China's dominance. The largest producer of oil in the world today is the United States at about 12,000 barrels per day. And this price collapse is really affecting the fracking companies that generate this glut of oil. Now, storage of oil is obviously difficult. Refineries are already full and there's a collapse in demand. And that's driving prices down, not just for crude unprocessed oil, but that is then cascading all through the production pipeline and affecting prices at the end point, at the consumer point. For example, in many states now, gasoline prices at the gas station are below a dollar a gallon, which is 60 femto unicorns per square foot <laughs> pound centimeter. Not quite sure how to do the metric on that. <laughs> but yeah, it's cheap, unfairly cheap. In fact, even for U.S. standards, that's cheap. And the U.S. is probably only second to Venezuela and Russia in terms of cheap gasoline for consumers. If you adjust for inflation, it may actually be the cheapest oil I've seen in my life <laughs> at the gas pump. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I remember dollar a gallon oil back in the late 90s. Yeah, but a dollar in the 90s is like $3 today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or 30, depending on which numbers you look at. So this has some very important implications. And Adam, you were talking about U.S. Bitcoin mining firms that have popped up, and most of those have popped up around Texas, I believe. Yes. And so that's directly related to the oil fracking industry. This isn't solar, renewable, or whatever. It's dirty oil. But in some cases, it's dirty oil that would be even dirtier otherwise, as is the case with flaring. And in other cases, it's again an imbalance in demand that's being addressed right now. Probably the single largest input consideration for profitability of miners is the cost of electricity. The cost of electricity is directly related to the cost of the underlying mechanism by which the electricity is produced, which in the case of a lot of the energy we're talking about in the US is oil. And it's competing directly in China with coal. Now, there are some studies that have shown that renewable energy, which is even cheaper, is beginning to dominate Bitcoin mining. But nevertheless, this is going to displace even dirtier coal that's being used in China with slightly less dirty oil used in the U.S. But what it is going to do most certainly is going to change the geographic concentration of hash rate because the competition is no longer on the acquisition of ASICs. And let me explain this. Until 2016, because of the very, very rapid increase in density of the ASIC chipsets, if you produced an ASIC mining rig in a silicon fabrication plant or the chips for an ASIC mining rig in a silicon fabrication plant, which obviously is concentrated in China, the lifetime for that mining rig, during which it was profitable, was measured in months, not years. Six months, in some cases as low as three months. And that means that you have a very narrow window to exploit that mining rig before it becomes unprofitable because the next generation that is double the density of chips comes out and therefore double the efficiency and puts you out of profitability. So that was happening until 2016. In 2016, the most advanced of these chips reached about the level of consumer CPU, 
And then shortly thereafter, consumer GPU levels of chip density manufacturing, at which point the whole development of that space slowed down to Moore's law and the life cycle of mining rigs expanded dramatically to reach and in some cases exceed two years, meaning that you buy a mining rig and it's still profitable for two years after you bought it, which means you can now ship it overseas, take your time installing it. And therefore, you don't have to be within 100 miles of the silicon fabrication plant in order to make any use of that mining rig. That shifted the attention to who can get the cheapest energy, whereas before it was who could get the profitable chips. And that undermines the dominance of China. How important do you think that was to sort of establishing the reality that we see today, where China really is providing the majority of the mining power? It was probably half that and half the cost of energy, because the cost of energy depends, one, on the source of energy, and two, on the willingness of the government to include externalized costs, such as environmental costs, in the price of energy through taxation or environmental subsidies and things like that. So if your government is willing to allow a coal power plant to operate while externalizing all of the environmental impact onto society without including it in the cost of the power, then obviously it's much cheaper to operate a coal power plant because everybody pays through decreased health and living conditions. If your government is less willing to do that and regulates the environmental impact, then the cost of coal is much higher. So in China, both effects were happening. You had immediate access to silicon fabrication and a very short pipeline to get that racked, mounted and operational in a warehouse or broken down barn near somewhere where you can get ridiculously cheap power. So both of those factors drove Chinese dominance. Clearly, any other country can't compete when both of those factors are extremely strong. Well, now, if both of those factors have now changed, ASICs are now exportable and profitable for longer periods of time, and energy from oil is now competitive. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over a trillion dollars in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Build your crypto portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. One more time, that's E-T-O-R-O.com. So Marty Bent, who does the podcast Tales from the Crypt, he's in a newsletter too, and he's kind of been a fixture in the crypto space for a number of years at this point, as a side project has been involved with this company, Great American Mining. Basically what they do is they work with energy producers or incidental energy producers to convert the energy that they have and are looking for something else to do with into Bitcoin mining. And they're not the only ones that do this, but they're just kind of an indicative example. They, you know, fill up a container with mining rigs and they basically wire the whole thing. Then they deliver it on site, typically to oil fields or one example, which is what I particularly want to talk about and think is a good example here, is a water treatment plant. And this water treatment plant, I think it's in North Dakota, creates natural gas as a byproduct of the water purification process. 
And so the problem is, is that once you've created the natural gas, it's not legal in the United States, at least, to just release it into the air because it's a pollutant for a bunch of different reasons. And it's not just a pollutant, but more importantly, the regulation changed in the last decade because natural gas is a much more potent greenhouse gas. Right. Methane is, I pronounce it the British way, methane. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Either way, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, way more than CO2. Everybody thinks CO2 is the biggest greenhouse gas, but it's actually methane. And that's one of the reasons why some people focus on cows, because they also emit a lot of methane out of their rear ends. I think it's a factor of four. So four times more global warming inducing than CO2. And methane comes from either industrial processes where you have methane trapped inside caves, fissures, etc., particularly in relation to the fracking industry. It comes from water treatment plants where you have biological matter that's decaying, and it comes from other biological processes of digestion, either inside the stomach of a cow or also in landfills, which if you've ever seen a landfill, you'll notice that they have various sensors and pipes and what looks like smokestacks. And what those are, are mechanisms to capture and control the release of methane that is a byproduct of the decay of organic material. Right. So we've got these water treatment plants and they have effectively natural gas being created as a byproduct and they can't just release it. And they're also not in a really good position to really do much of anything with it. So the choices that they typically have are, one, you can build a pipeline and then you can pipe it someplace and then you can hopefully sell it to somebody there. But the downside about building a pipeline is that, first off, it's very expensive and very environmentally potentially taxing in order to build a pipeline. And secondly, and arguably more importantly, when you build a pipeline, you're effectively creating a monopoly relationship with wherever that pipeline ends, right? Because it's not like you're going to be like, oh, well, I don't like this price, so I'm going to build another pipeline going someplace else to give myself more options. The other option that they have is to flare it. And what flaring means basically is that they burn it like a, a kerosene lantern type of thing. You'll see these large stacks, and then at the top, there will be a flame coming out. And one of the reasons why they do this in oil fields is because if you have overproduction of this type of energy, once you get an oil well going, you can't turn it off. If you turn it off, there's a very large startup cost, and it's frankly challenging and difficult and a variety of other things built around that. So the option has been kind of that. Either you burn it, and that's slightly better than just releasing it, but it still isn't really better. And so states have taken kind of a harsh regulatory approach to that and frankly don't want you to do that. Or you build a pipeline and you send it someplace, and then you're basically in a whole other business outside of water treatment. Or you ground it, which is for regulatory reasons. If you can't burn it off, you just run a jenny and then ground it. <laughs> you just throw it in the ground. Right. Or you just literally waste the energy. So that's effectively what mining is competing with in these circumstances. To explain flaring just a tiny bit further, you're still releasing a global warming gas. The difference is by burning methane, you're converting it primarily into carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and various other things, depending on how efficiently you're burning it, rather than releasing it directly as methane. And carbon dioxide can be recaptured from the air by plants doing photosynthesis. However, methane cannot. Wow, yes. Very good point. So you've probably seen this if you drive, you know, past New Jersey refineries, for example, you'll see a series of these flames and they're pretty big flames. They're like, you know, three, four foot tall flames at the tops of the stacks. 
they look very pretty at night or horrifying, depending on your environmental bend. Yeah, but they don't smell very pretty. There's this area of New Jersey that is uh, you know, <laughs> affectionately nicknamed Stink New Jersey because it <laughs> smells really bad. I really like the fact that the Garden State is the entire part of New Jersey that isn't facing New York, and the whole part of the state was parked right next to the coast of New York. <laughs> so this is sort of the environment that mining is operating in right now. It's not that there are good options for things to do with this. It's that there are only really bad options for what you can do with these types of products. And so to Jonathan's point about using it to generate electricity and then literally just wasting it, that is still preferable in some circumstances to doing any of these other things, just because it's easier and a little bit less polluting than the alternatives. You guys have been familiar with the attempts to create like cryptocurrency-based decentralized marketplaces for electricity, right, with Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that would solve the problem of how to allocate electricity and price it correctly? If that were more widely adopted, do you think that we would see less waste taking place? Not really. The primary problem there is a problem of distribution networks. So distributing electricity involves very, very, very high losses per kilometer of distance traveled. In order to distribute the electricity, you have to up voltage it to very high voltages in order to reduce the losses and build these enormous pylons, et cetera, et cetera, which require maintenance. All of this is extremely expensive, and most of this oil production happens very, very far from population centers where the demand is. So the problem is that you're producing electricity in a place where it's not needed, and getting it to a place where it's needed is near impossible. Now compare that. The best solution, of course, would be if you could simply beam electricity like a microwave. But you can't. But what you can do is beam internet. And so the actual cost of providing data connectivity services for a Bitcoin miner that is using electricity locally, but depending on receiving transactions and sending blocks over a cellular network, for example, or a microwave data network, you can actually beam the data to the miner and back from the miner and burn the electricity locally in order to produce Bitcoin. So that solves the problem because of the differences between distribution of data and distribution of power. Yeah, Marty's quote is that if designed correctly, containers filled with Bitcoin miners have far superior uptime and are up to five times more profitable on average than sending the gas to a pipeline to sell it. So just in general, it's a question of what's the best available use. And just because of kind of the attributes around Bitcoin mining, so long as you can connect to the Bitcoin network, then mining Bitcoin, at least at prices like we see today, is really much more efficient than many of the other alternatives. The world has kind of changed in the past two months, but last year I did look into co-locating with flare-ups a little bit commercially, and it logistically becomes a really massive hassle. And when you put in the effort for what you're arbing out and the human labor costs, it ends up being almost equivalent to kind of not worth the effort, which is kind of why no one's done it. One of the problems with these flare-offs is when you're mining natural gas, you're not staying stationary. It's not like you're building this massive facility and you're there for 20 years. You're moving. And so as they're going for these different pockets, where their burnoffs are occurring may change. And so if you're setting up your mining rig, your mining rig needs to be able to be moved regularly and the data connection needs to be good. And all these other things need to come into play and you need to coordinate with the facility. And then before you know it, you need to logistically figure out how to move a large amount of weight 
without destroying the stuff inside of it regularly while maintaining your uplink and maintaining all the cables and this and that and not getting in the way of the electrical actual people doing their job. And when you factor in all of that, the numbers end up making the hassle almost the equivalent of just finding something slightly more expensive. And that's why at least before this craziness with no one on Earth using oil, you didn't really see co-located flare facilities occurring, even though the ARB is very present for everyone to see. What if money could be created without an authority? Are corporate coins the first step towards techno-neo-feudalism? Is the real darknet run by state intelligence agencies? Bitcoin and open blockchains educator Andreas M. Antonopoulos answers these questions and more in his latest book, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, now available on Amazon. Following the worldwide success of Volumes 1 and 2, this third installment contains 12 of Andreas' most inspiring and thought-provoking talks. Available in paperback and on Kindle Unlimited, Order The Internet of Money, Volume 3, on Amazon today. Right now, most of the world has really taken this social distancing thing seriously, and all of the habits that drive oil consumption and drive energy consumption have changed dramatically to the detriment for these oil producers. It seems very likely that we're going to see a bailout of the oil industry in the United States. But if we weren't going to see bailouts of the oil industry in the United States, the thing that comes to my mind is, can Bitcoin be a resiliency tactic in the event that we see further shutdowns that result in something very similar to this, right? Where suddenly everyone stops using oil, the price crashes. And basically at this point, people are filling up tankers and just storing them on the ocean, hoping that this ends soon enough. But effectively, the world is out of storage for oil right now. It seems like given that the oil industry, given the energy industry in the United States is a strategically important industry, according to the government, Having these sort of Bitcoin mining installations and having the ability to redirect the energy that you otherwise don't know what to do with into these, even if you're not running them most of the time, you're just running them in the event of a crisis, seems like actually it's a tactic that could perform very well. Now, in a world of bailouts, maybe that's not true. Maybe the incentive isn't there in the same way that it would be if that wasn't the expectation. But I'm curious for thoughts on that. Well, I think it makes perfect sense. It's reasonable and it's something that should be done. And the government will move on it in the way that they do, which is with lightning speed. And in the next couple of years, if we're still in this situation, that's probably what they'll do. <laughs> I'd like to add one little tidbit that's really fascinating. Given that this fracking industry developed so rapidly and is enormously over leveraged and at the first sign of a crisis is collapsing. At this point in time, the total market capitalization of all of the companies in that sector is $750 billion, which means that the U.S. government could nationalize the entire industry for just a fraction of the stimulus package. Whoa, 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 whoa. Over leveraged hundred millionaires should lose money. What do you think these are, small businesses? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about insanity, look at the bailout that they gave the banks in stealth. The unlimited money printing promise? No, 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 no. The literal bailout that no one even notices occurred when the stimulus checks, or as I like to call them, tax rebates got processed. Those were all processed through the banks. And then all of these commercial loans that got lent out, which were taxpayer backed, zero risk, all of the banks charged their traditional commercial fees on. It's billions. Yeah. They made $10 billion off of risk-free loans in a single week processing this stuff. Yeah. Wow. 
That was a $10 billion, not even a loan, just a straight up grant to the banks for taxpayer backed money. So if we're talking about insanity, goddamn, like I wish we just gave the oil company 10 billion versus the bankers. Like at least it's doing something. We don't even have enough men to kill the cows. So at least it'll be <laughs> eaten. Like maybe we give them the money versus the bankers that literally did nothing. So we're in straight up crazy town right now. Well, we've been in crazy town for a while at this point. You know, it's been said that COVID-19 wasn't a black swan, but the government response to it was. I think that's pretty apt. I think that there's a lot of change going on kind of in the world today, just by nature of the response and sort of the response to the response and then the knock-on effects that we don't even know about yet. I would disagree with that. I do genuinely think this virus is a black swan. However, what I would say is that the government, the constitutional republic that represents America, is a 200-year-old technology. It was invented, you know, in the 1700s. It's great. As far as 200-year-old technologies goes, it's phenomenal. But it's still a 200-year-old technology. And so what we're basically dealing with is 18th century medicine. And so what happened is we got a cold, and then we went to an 18th century doctor. <laughs> and while we have pneumonia, he's bloodletting us and talking about how he needs to drill bird holes in our skull to heal our femurs or fumers or whatever they called it. Humors. Right. That's a good analogy, because if we survive, it's like in spite of the cure, not because of it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like when Lincoln was shot and they just put a finger in his brain and searched for the bullet for a bit, that probably did a little bit more <laughs> than the bullet. Ooh, I didn't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they did their best, bless their heart, but it was 200 years ago. Also, no gloves. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know what they didn't know, but <laughs> yeah. Well, we know better, but unfortunately, we're still stuck with doctors from the 18th century. It's called a president and Congress and governors. All right. So um, back on track. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing about what's occurring right now, which is really interesting from a mining perspective, is we have these dropping in prices of electricity at the same time that their supply chains to ship and the ability to manufacture is being massively curtailed. So there are some fundamental assumptions that are core to Bitcoin working. And this capacity for this feedback loop of the price of Bitcoin and the difficulty adjustments is inherent to you know, the way that Bitcoin works. And it's weird to say how long something that can't continue will continue. But this thought that prices of electricity could collapse, the majority of the price of manufacturing a Bitcoin is electricity. And at the same time, the ability to create new miners will be virtually zero. And the ability to distribute it, even once they start being manufactured, will be near zero. We may be in this very weird situation where the cost basis of Bitcoin will be lowest relative to its price in its near history, at the same time that there's no way for new entrants to purchase more difficulty to arb that back up. It'll be very interesting to see what that does to the economics of Bitcoin and how it you know, survives that. And again, all this is based on this insane world where we have negative electricity and it's illegal to go outside. And that's a wrap for episode 435 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks very much for listening. This episode was sponsored by eToro.com, edited by Jonas, and featured music by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Today's show featured Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, Andreas M. Antonopoulos, and Adam B. Levine. You can email Adam at ltbshow.com with any questions or comments. And with any luck, we'll be back next week for a look at a pair of contrasting state surveillance apparatus. We'll see you then.